fill with your spirit. Pray us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, good morning. Well, I have a, I have a s- sort of funny story. It's funny because it plays on the, the stereotype of soccer parents. Um, I was watching my son Moses play soccer. This was a couple weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. And he was playing against some boys that were a little bit bigger than he was, and the kids were pretty good. So his team was losing by about a goal. And, uh, and halfway through the game, another player for the other team shows up. So he, he starts playing. And I'm not sure which player it was, but I know there's another player because all of a sudden uh, his parents showed up. And they were sitting maybe like 15 feet from me on the same sideline. And uh, it's all going great. You know, this, these are kindergartners, five- and six-year-olds playing soccer, uh, boys and girls. And well, I think it's mostly boys. I think it's one girl. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They're just little kids playing soccer. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm not actually paying that close attention to the game. And uh, this, this lady, she starts to yell. She, she gets real fired up, and she says, Don't let him push you. Don't let him push you. Don't. And she just keeps yelling. She yells it like six times. And I, and I like, I'm caught off guard. And so I look, and I'm like, what's happening on the field? Like, is my son doing something that he shouldn't be doing? Where's the ref? Like, someone's dying, you know? And, um, and so, but what I see is, like, five-year-olds playing soccer. That's actually what I see. Like, I don't really know what that lady's yelling at, um, but okay. And then uh, I, I go back to paying minimal attention. No, I'm, it was great. I love watching him play. I do love soccer. But I'm, I'm just, like, kind of watching the game, just, like, enjoying it. And probably 60 seconds later, there's a change of possession, and she starts yelling, push him, push him, push him. And I'm like, this lady, like, you got to be kidding me. They're five. Like, that's my son you're talking about. That's like this, this mom's kid that you're talking about. Like, who are you kidding? Uh, and I, I, why do I share that story? It's not because I'm better than the push him lady. Um, I'm not. If you, if you put us before the Lord, like our righteousness and our wickedness, like we would be so far from the, like we'd look the same. We're not, I'm not that different, um, strikingly similar. But I share the story because it reveals something about all of us. Uh, that, that all of you in here, when you heard that, I bet that you were also a little bit like cringeworthy, like incensed, like the hypocrisy of that just is, is it feels wrong to you. Uh, and you're right. It's wrong. No one celebrates hypocrisy. Like, no one thinks, like, oh, look at that hypocrite, the best, you know. Um, there's something inside of us that there are universal truths that we all, we all know and understand just intrinsically. Uh, things like no one celebrates selfishness. No one celebrates cowardice. Um, and so what Paul's going to talk about today, the text that we're looking into, is Paul saying those things that you feel inside, that universal experience, um, I put that in you. And, and I have a purpose for that, a reason for that. And so that's what we're exploring. Uh, the outline of the passage is first the point of the law. So why did God give us the law? Second, the effect of the law. Uh, how does this matter for me? And then finally, universal laws. What are these universal laws? Help us to understand them. And what I hope you leave with, the point Paul is trying to make, is that God's judgment is perfect. He has a perfect judgment, and it's right towards all people. What God says is perfect, it's right towards all people. Okay, so the point of the law. What is the point of the law? The law meaning the Mosaic law, it's like the Ten Commandments, or you, you, could, you could consider the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system. It's like all of these things. Why did God give them to us? Uh, there's a few reasons. Uh, one, the law reveals who God is. We see his character and what he's, he's given his people. Uh, the law is also given to Israel, so it makes this nation unique and set apart. Uh, he, 
he, uh, he's given us a law, and it shows the pathway to forgiveness. There's this foreshadowing of Christ and, and, and the sacrificial system. Uh, it gave guidance for worship. But I think one of the main reasons that we have the law uh, is to expose that we're lawbreakers. It's to reveal our sin. That God actually gives law that we would see that we're broken. Uh, Ephesians 3.20, it says for... This is just, I'm sorry, Ephesians, it's Romans 3.20. So this is just, Paul is going to continue this argument throughout Romans. And so we're in chapter 2 now. In chapter 3, this is what he says. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. What is the point of the law? Knowledge of sin comes through the law. I like the NIV. It says the law, the law makes us conscious of our sin. We see our sin because we have God's word. And, and as we hear that, you might think the law is oppressive. Like, ah, the law is... God wants me to not have fun. It's stupid. It's, um, if I did it in my life, if I did everything God called me to my life, it would be boring. I'll miss out on opportunities. Uh, who likes the law? But in reality, will God give us instruction? It's because he wants us to have the course of the, the, the life and the parameters that he's designed. It's actually the best thing for us. His law is help us. And our life is not about the law. Our life is about God and then how we, we understand him and live it out with others. So our life, the point of our life is not the law. Um, but when the law is done right, it actually enables freedom and is the best thing for us. So let me, let me explain. Uh, I think of it like this. When I, when I watch my uh, beloved Vikings, who are sort of the problem child right now, uh, I'm rooting for them to win. I'm like, skull, let's go. Get that, get that victory. And uh, when I'm watching the game, I'm not thinking, I'm not, I'm not rooting for them to obey the rules. I'm like, yes, don't hold. Like, yes, don't pass or fear. Yes. Don't fumble. Actually, it's not a rule. That's just what they do. But um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for the Vikings. Now, imagine this. So imagine Kirk Cousins, Vikings quarterback. He goes back. He throws it to Justin Jefferson before he was hurt. And uh, Jefferson gets a first down. He celebrates. And Kirk is pumped. And then he runs. And so in between plays, the ref picks up the ball and puts it in a certain spot so they can do another play. So the ref picks up the ball. And then Kirk runs, steals the ball from the ref, runs to the end zone, and starts to celebrate. He's yelling, touchdown, Kirk Cousins, touchdown, skull. And then he does the gritty, and then everyone in the stadium's like, this guy, what's he doing? Well, I don't understand. And then they, and then they throw a flag, delay a game. Uh, and then Kirk's like, no, 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 it's a touchdown. I got into the end zone. And everyone knows, Kirk, that's silly. There are rules. The game ha has rules, and you just broke the rules. See, what the rules do is they, they regulate how the game is to be played. They're not the game itself. And that's how it is with the law. God, God gives us these parameters of how life is to be lived, but the point is not the law. The point is that God would give us the fullest life and we would experience freedom as we live within the confines and the bounds that are healthy. Uh, the other thing it does, though, is that we, we do get outside the confines. So even though he's given us this good plan, it's like we break the law. And so the law, it, 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 um, it shows that we're broken. Our knowledge of sin, it comes through the law. And the other thing that God does, he doesn't just give us the law, but we learn from this passage is he also gives us a conscience. A conscience is, uh, it is the, it's designed to, to mirror the impartial judgment of God. That's the goal, is that the conscience would, would be inside us and it would say, hey, uh, you know, flag, like something is not, is not right. And we're going to come back to that idea in a little bit. So why do we have the law? Uh, what's the point of the law? It's to reveal sin to us. One of the points. Uh, what is the effect of the law? How does the law affect us? Verses 11 through 13, it says, There is no favoritism with God. For all who sin without the law also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are, are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
so he's, he's breaking this down into two categories. He says there's these people who don't have the law and those who do have the law. So the do have the law, he's talking about the Jews. And those who don't have the law, he's, he's, most, he's talking about the Gentiles, people who don't understand or haven't heard. And so he, he, he addresses each of them in these first, first couple verses. So verse 13, let's start with the Jews. So God's chosen people. Um, this is what he says. He says, uh, those who hear the law, they know, they understand, they've heard the law. He says they are not righteous before God. What he means is simply hearing is not enough. Oh, I heard that. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I knew that. Because it's not about just what you hear, hear or what you know. What he says is like, it's what you obey. And, and really, I say that with a little bit of cringe because like, obedience is not salvation. And if you read that, you could say, I think that's what he's talking about here. Um, but this is really, it's a sign of salvation that God has transformed and renewed you. And JC, you talked about it last week, so I'm not going to rehash it, but you can go back and hear JC's message from last week. Or just keep reading in Romans, because in Romans 3.28, it says, For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So he says, he says to the Jews, it's, it's, about, it's not just about hearing, it's about doing. What he's saying is, you can't just take the law, it's like you have to obey the law totally, completely, and rightly. So he says, but they can't. So, even those who have the law, who've heard the law, they're going to be punished. They're not righteous before God. And then there's this other group, the Gentiles. Um, and I, I hope, when you think about the Gentiles, you're like, well, let's look at verse 12. Here's what it says in verse 12. Uh, because even the Gentiles, they know the difference between right and wrong. So Paul confidently, he lays out his argument before he explains why. He says, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And that perish, uh, it's like eternal punishment. So they'll face eternal punishment without the law. And all of a sudden, under the law, will be judged by the law. So that's the Jews. So you've got the Gentiles first, and then you have the Jews. Well, verse 11 also just tells us there's no uh, favoritism with God. And what he means is salvation be offered to all, but also it's, the reason we all need salvation is because we're all judged. So those who have the law are judged by the law, but those who don't have it, they've actually been judged too. By what? by what's inside. So how is this fair? The Gentiles, they don't have the law. How can they be held to it? Uh, well, it's because th- they, can, they will perish under the law because they have the universal law. It doesn't use that word universal law, but that, that is the idea. And so there are universal laws. Uh, let's look at verse 14. It says, so when, Gentiles, so when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. So how is God's judgment fair for those who have the law and those who don't? Uh, How is that that okay? Well, it's because all people know right from wrong. Every person is without excuse, knows right and wrong. So the Gentiles, they didn't receive the law like the Jews did. Uh, and yet, the Gentiles act like they understand the law. Like you go in society, like, oh yeah, they, they, they get it to some degree. Uh, because they do. God has put inside each person an understanding of good and bad. And so we're going to look at a few implications. What are the implications of this universal law, this, this knowledge of good and evil? One, all people know right from wrong. All people. So there's, there's no such thing as... Uh, moral relativism. And what I mean by that is, is you believe what you believe about morality, and I believe what I believe, and we're both, it's both equal and the same. And, and you can't elevate any position over another. 
And someone might say that um, until they get cut off in traffic. And then they're incensed, like, ah, how can they do that? Well, they're just following their own morality. No, you know? Or if they're falsely accused of something, they, all of a sudden they stop. Or as, as uh, Pastor Dandard said, uh, people, people believe in, abs- in relative morality until they get punched in the face. <laughs> uh, they're like, no, how could someone do that to me? You know, of course. And all of a sudden, uh, moral relativism, it doesn't make sense anymore. They think, my, my way is right. It's absolutely right. There are absolute truths, and you just broke them. So all people we do, we have this understanding. And so individually know this, the things I just talked about. But, you know, like if someone cuts in line in front of you, like, it's like, like ah, oh, that, that's like, or if you get lied to or slandered about or betrayed, all those things that you feel and you know there are injustices. Now, here's the question. Do injustices only bother you, or did they only start to bother you once you became a Christian? No. Injustices bothered you before you were a Christian, and they bother you after you're a Christian, because they're in every single person. Uh, the work of the law, the work of God's law, it's written on our hearts. But it's not just individually we understand this, but also we understand this as a society. I really appreciate it. Uh, I read a bunch of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity this week, and I thought it was really helpful. He talks about kind of all of these issues to start the book. And so we're going to hear a couple things that he has to say. Um, and here's how he talked about society. He says, he says, societies are actually pretty similar, much more than you would think. Like, we think they're so different because we, we focus on the differences. But that's because the base is so well understood that we just, like, assume those things. We just look at the differences. Here's how he, he describes it. He says, that if anyone will take the trouble to compare a moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. I need only ask the reader to think what a totally different morality would mean. Think of a country where people are admired for running away in battle, or a man felt proud double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well try to imagine a country where two and two make five. (laughs) So we're actually very close. Like It's crazy to think that we're all so different, Um, and his point is that is that there is a morality that we're all aspiring to. We may not all agree exactly what that absolute truth is, but we all know that there is a greater truth. And, and we are trying to be convinced that this is not true in our, in our society today. Uh, for instance, um, people believe, and I, and I believed, that people are mostly good. Like, ah, oh, that person's good, and, and people are, are good. And, and, and it usually starts with us, but then we have to apply it to others. But Paul would say, look at our consciences. Everyone knows you're actually not good. Like, you don't... You violate your conscience. You, you break God's law. Uh, people also, they want to believe that we're morally neutral, uh, meaning that, that uh, everything you believe about morals is just socially constructed. What you've seen in your society, uh, the, like the values you're brought up in, the language you, you live, all of it is just it's constructed by this outside world, and we're a clean slate to begin with. But what he says here is, no, no, no. Every person is imprinted with a conscience. We're all imprinted with God, what God has, has given us, and we know right from wrong. Morality is not socially constructed. We are not born morally neutral. Now, I say that understanding that, that society, it does affect morals. Like, it's not that it can't affect morals, and it will over time, but we begin with God, and God starts uh, helping us to understand what's right and wrong on every heart. I'm going to go a little side note here because I think this, this is helpful, is that uh, morality or moral law, it's actually a great apologetic for the existence of God. 
Like, where did morals come from? Like, why do we have this desire to do the things or not do the things in life? Like, whatever, you know, why, why do we care? Um, you know, if we're just a bunch of, if we're just a bunch of, of cells that have evolved over time, a bunch, just a bunch of processes, then why would any of, of this matter? Well, is it, is it just that um, I don't murder because I, like, I'm thinking about societal good, which actually helps me. So, like, I don't murder because I don't get murdered. Like, I help others so that others will help me which is actually selfishness in and of itself. Um, well, I think moral law, moral morality, it is, a, it is a great witness that there is something, a driving force behind it. So here's how the argument goes. If moral values exists, exist, then God exists. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. Uh, and objective, it means it's not an opinion, and so I think the things that you've been hearing me say, these are demonstrations of things that we all experience that we'd say, yes, we all agree. Now, we might be like little variances, but we all agree that these things are true. And if we really believe that these are true, then what we're saying is um, objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very simple argument. And you can get way deep, and it's way more complex than that, and there's theologians who, who debate this. But I think very simple, like where do we get our morals from? Something greater. And this is not an argument that Christianity is right. Now, I think you can take this and then bring it back to why Christianity is right. But really, it's just the argument there has to be some force, some being that understands and has given morality into the universe. Um, C.S. Lewis, he says it like this. He says, the moment you say one set of moral ideas can be better than the other, you are, in fact, measuring them by a standard, saying that one of them conforms the standard more nearly than the other. But the standard that measures two things is something different from, the, uh, from either You are, in fact, comparing them both to some real morality, admitting there is such a thing as real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that right than others. He's saying there's a standard, and we might disagree, like, we might be a little bit different spots, but, like, we all agree that there is something. And the fact that we fight about what's right shows it. Uh, we're, We're actually fighting about what the real standard is. So morality, it shows the existence of God. All people know right and wrong. All right. Let's keep going, though. The next implication. So universal law. What's the next implication of universal law? It's that all people break their own standards. We all break our own standards. One of the most convicting questions that was ever asked me was, um, do you live up to the standards you hold other people to? Like, do I personally live up to the standards I hold other people to? If I use myself as the judge, would I be okay? And the obvious answer, no. <laughs> I'm like the mom yelling, push him, push him, much more than the person that I want to be. Uh, for example, uh, I teach my kids not to swear, you know, not to, not to, and I can tell you at six foot five, I have hit my head a few times. And, and often, not every time, the first thing that comes through my mind, that races my mind, is not honoring to God. They are, they are dirty. Like, it's like, and I have to, after I, like, it, when it happens, I have to be like, why did I, why did that happen? Why did that come out of me? Why was I shaking? And that's the thing that comes out. Uh, and I have to repent. That's a little thing, potentially. Um, but I think about other things. Like, probably the greatest people that f- experience this is my family, especially my wife, my hypocrisy. Like, I hold them to the standard that I don't hold myself to. Um, for instance, like, if my wife have a, has a bad day, sometimes, sometimes I think, why can't you just have a good day? <laughs> you know, like, why does it have to be like this? And then I have a bad day, and I'm like, why can't you see I'm having a bad day? Like, I'm a little grumpy today, you know? And I, I, I just I, I put us in a different spot. 
I cannot live up to my own lofty standards. And that's what Paul is describing here. And then also earlier, JC, like he talked about last week in Romans, earlier in Romans 2, he says they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the worth of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. In other words, I'm a law unto myself. My own thoughts and standards that I adhere to, they either excuse or accuse me. Um, you know, I expect a lot out of others, and yet I daily fail those standards. And when I fail, I feel guilty, often. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm like, I fail, I'm like, oh, I just keep going. But often, my conscience is like, why did you do that? Why did you say that? Why did you think that? And, and the truth is, we should feel guilty. Like, that's actually the right response. That is God working inside of us. Um, and I'll come back to that idea a little bit. Um, and you could think, I think sometimes we, we, we say, well, I'm going to use, I said my own standard, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to look out at other people and evaluate how are they living. And so if I, if I say my standard is actually how other people live, uh, I might be able to feel puffed up for a little bit. But then I have to like come back to, yeah, but am I living up to even my own expectations? I am not. And so we make excuses for our sin. You know, JC mentioned some of this last week, but, you know, when we sin and, and we, we should, we're, like, convicted, we might say things like, but you don't understand, I only slept three hours last night. Uh, but you don't, you don't understand, I, I, it was right for me to be upset, I mean, because I have all these stressors at home, like, uh, or I have all these stressors at work. Um, things, are, things are tight financially, or I had this, this terrible incident happen this morning, and so lay off me. Um, and so we, we, not only do we have very high expectations of others, we have very low expectations of ourselves because we just justify our sin and our wrong. And so we can say, I, my own standards, I can about other standards, but here's the kicker. The one that we should really compare ourselves to is the Lord. Like, how, how do I compare it to Jesus, what Jesus calls me to and how Jesus lived? If I, any of these standards, if I look at them at any place, I am guilty and you are guilty. We're guilty. So let's look back at this universal law, this last aspect. I'm going to call it the judge. <laughs> it's also known as the conscience. The conscience. All people have a judge. All people have a conscience. Um, you know, if you were God and you were like, hey, I want people to understand right and wrong. Uh, I want the whole world to know how would you do that? Like, how would you go about helping people understand? It's like you could, uh, you know, drop a sheriff in every town. You could, like, tattoo the Bible on, like, their leg. Um, you could... No, you could just imprint yourself on their heart so they understand, and it would be called the conscience. That's what God does. He says, I'm just going to put it inside every single person. Every person has an internal understanding of right and wrong. The conscience, it's designed to mirror the impartial judgment of God. That's the goal. It will not do it perfectly, but that is the goal, that we would understand the judgment of God. So again, the passage, verse 15, says, their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel, through Christ Jesus. Uh, he says, God judges what people have kept secret. And so inside you, at all times, there's an inner voice judging your thoughts and actions, your conscience. And what it's judging is what your heart chooses. So it's not just the things that I do. Uh, it's also the things that I dwell on and I own and I... My, that my heart chooses. 
So there, there's such thing as like fleeting thoughts or something that like goes through your mind and it's like, it's like I didn't hold on to that. I didn't dwell on that. That's not, that's different. But when, when our heart starts to get owned, it starts to get consumed, that's when, that's when the conscience is like, hey, is that, is that right? Is that good? And so even in our secret, the secret places inside of us, God's going to judge. And that's not excluding the things we do. And I think there's like sort of an in-between place where it's like we're often people sin and they don't want others to know. And this is where the danger of computers or cell phone comes from. It's because we can do it in the darkness and think no one's going to know about this. And so people, they look at pornography or maybe they say horrible things about, horrible things about others they wouldn't say to their face. Like, why would someone do that? It's because no one knows. What this is telling us is that, no, God is going to judge even what we've kept secret. There's nothing hidden. And our conscience is also calling those things out. It's also saying, don't do that. You, you know, and sometimes they'll celebrate. The conscience can, can sometimes excuse us, like, oh, that was, a, that was a good decision. So it's not only on the bad side. Um, it can be on the good side as well. Um, but Paul, he's talking about in context of judgment in this passage. He's saying, listen, no one is without excuse. What we have to know about sin is that sin, it will affect our conscience. So our conscience is not static. It, it moves, it judges the work of your heart, so it'll go up and down, and, and it is, um, it's, it's being shaped all the time by our lives and how we respond to our lives. And so um, one way that we, all sin is idolatry, but one way, one way uh, what idolatry is in putting something above and before God, and, and it's a heart issue. So when we have idols in our life, those are personal to us. So like what I struggle with might be different than what you struggle with. I'm sure it is. Um, and vice versa. But I'm going to give you an example here of how my sin affects, how my sin has affected me uh, and my conscience and kind of play this out a little bit. So this is a month ago. I was watching, uh, again, my beloved Minnesota Vikings. And I got home from church. I'd preached. I got home and no one was home. So it was just me. And I turned on the Vikings game. And they were doing like the Vikings do. <laughs> they were just doing terrible. It was, it was so embarrassing. And I was like so frustrated. I was tired. Excuses. Uh, and, and I was just like on the couch. And then I'm like yelling at the TV. And I'm complaining. And I had an invitation to come to a friend's house and watch the Vikings game with it. And I was like, my heart is not in a place where I can go. Like, I, I am so mad about the Vikings. Um, and if you're wondering, what did that feel like? Uh, if you're here and you're a Hawkeyes fan, it's like when that call got overturned between the Vikings, I mean, between the Gophers and the Hawkeyes last night, that's what it was like, but worse. Um, and so I didn't go to my friend's house. I stayed home. I was grumpy. And I knew. I had just talked about thankfulness at church. Like, that was part of what I talked about. And I was like, I'm wrong. Like, I'm wrong. This is stupid. And, but I also was not ready to repent. Like, I was like, oh, I, need to, like I need to snap out of this. And so I thought about it. I'm upstairs. I took a nap came back downstairs, actually, no, in my room, and I repented. I said, Lord, I know I'm in a bad spot. I know that I'm, I care about this more than I care about you right now. Like, if I was around other people, I would not treat them like you want to be treated. This is an idol, and I'm sorry that I'm valuing this thing that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, and we can all, we're all going to have those opportunities. We all have times in our life that are little things, like, a, like a, well, depending on how you look at it, it could be a big thing. Um, idolatry. Things you're going to realize, what am I going to do with this? Um, and so there, there are two. When we, when we sin, there's two choices we have. The first is we could repent and recalibrate your conscience based on God's word. So the, your first choice is like, am I going to repent of this thing? 
Uh, and I eventually made the right choice. It took me a little bit to get there, but I was like, oh, like before the Lord, like I am, I need, I need forgiveness, Lord. I, I value this thing too much. Um, but also to recalibrate um, our conscience based on God's word because our conscience is not infallible. So we're imprinted with it, but it gets, sh- it gets changed and shaped by, partially by our experiences, by the life that we live. Um, and so how do you have a perfect conscience? Then you would, you would say, I need to perfectly understand the word of God and then I have to walk in the spirit. Uh, and so when we sin, oftentimes we have to say, I need to go back to God's word. I need to go back and I need to ask God to help me to understand and to walk with him. And this is tricky, this recalibration, because our conscience can actually lie to us. It's not always right. So that can, that can look like someone sinning and thinking this isn't that big a deal. But it can also look like someone living for God, maybe making some missteps, but, but trying to live for God, but always feeling guilty. Like, is that the life God wants his people to live? No. And so we have to be very careful to conscience that we don't overvalue it and think this is, this is for sure. The way that I feel is reality. It's like, no, the, the point of this is to point us back to God, to, to, to walk with him. And so when we sin, we have the chance that we can repent and recalibrate. Um, we want to base it on God's word and what he teaches. The second option when we sin is we can reinterpret reality and sear our conscience. We can reinterpret reality and sear our conscience. In other words, we try to convince ourselves that uh, that well, we were right. What I was doing was actually a good thing. And there are lots of ways we do this. The first is that we make excuses. And we've talked about that. We make excuses. Like, oh, this, is, this is the reason that happened. Or there are other ways. We can say, we can try to get other people to agree with us. Because when there's community, you're like, no, they agree with me. Like, we're, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Uh, we can use drugs and alcohol to cover it up. Like, I just suppress, like, I don't actually feel that way. And so I look to something else. We can over-spiritualize it. Play the grace card and say, well, Jesus knows I'm a sinner. So is it, you know, like, is it really that big a deal? It's like, yes, it actually is a big deal. We need to repent of that thing. And God offers his forgiveness to you, but, but to just dismiss it out of hand. Or we can blame shift and point fingers. Yeah, but, but it's their fault. And this, it's, it's a version of excuses that involves people. We just point at someone else. And in the long run, if we make habits of any of these, what happens? We start to sear our conscience. We, 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 tra- we shape our conference conscience in a way uh, that makes things distorted and we'll be very confused about life. Uh, Our life will be difficult. It won't won't make sense. God's word even might be challenging to us because we start to have this perverted understanding of reality. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 talks about a conscience being serious. It says, now the spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the hypocrisy of liars, those consciences are seared. He's not talking about believers. Be saying as, the, as they're hypocrites, as they lie, they're actually like hardening themselves to God. They're hardening their hearts. They're hardening their consciences. Uh, I can give you an example of this. I uh, remember a conversation I had with a brother. Uh, we were talking. He, he struggles with addiction. And so we were talking, and uh, addiction was kind of creeping back in, creeping its ugly head back into his life. And so we were, we were discussing and he was, he was explaining to me that he could participate just a little bit. <laughs> like, I, if I, just a little bit. Because when I do it just a little bit, what it does is it gives glory to God because I, I show that I'm free in Christ. That, I, that, I, that God has given me this freedom and I should enjoy this freedom. Why else would God give it to me? And, uh, and he was a little bit right. He, like, he, like, he had some biblical backing in that there is freedom in Christ. Um, but he was also very wrong. 
his conscience was being seared by his excuses and by, by, his, um, by his own desires, by his flesh. See, he wasn't trying to honor God with his freedom. He was trying to, to indulge in the flesh. And he had had a crash a number of years before, and, and the result of that was uh, he said, hey, I can't like, go into this at all. Like, I can't step into this realm at all, because if I do, I know that it leads to just the depths. Like, as soon as I start, I'm gone. And so I brought that up. I said, hey, listen, we've had this conversation before. Uh, and you said that if I start into this addiction, that I'm already gone. Like, I can't even do any part of this. And then he, again, he was like, well, and he tried to explain to me again. I said, I said, no, no, no. But for you, your conscience, what God has already put on side of you has already told you you're sinning. And so for him, even the moment that he stepped into it, he was sinning. He was sinning. And so he kept trying to reinterpret reality to Sears conscience. And he did. And, and it didn't take but a couple days. And he was back in a dark place. This is one of the beauties of conscience. When we repent, God, he's going to help us. But as we remain proud and harden ourselves, well, we know what happens. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God will actually fight us when we say, no, I don't care about that. Uh, and we may, this may have been obvious to you as we've been talking, but, but each person's conscience is different. So what is, what's impacting me might be different than what impacts you. Uh, and so this is helpful because sometimes we do things like that are good that actually might be bad according to our conscience. Like, I'm doing this good thing, but I'm doing it so I'd be noticed. It's like, actually, that's, that's probably not right. Or I'm doing this, this good thing out of selfishness for my reputation. And so that we can, some of our outward actions that look good to others could actually not be good in our own heart. And so this is a challenging thing. Even all motives are always challenging. So don't look too deeply into that idea, but, but we have to just know that, that each of us has our own conscience that's being shaped and formed. Even my example about the Vikings might be like, that's a stupid example. Yeah, because you don't care about Vikings. But just like when I go in public, I usually don't care what I look like very much, you know? But some might like want to look perfect and look all put together, and they might have this, this perfect image of themselves. It's like we struggle with different things, and our conscience is going to help us point us back to God. But as we struggle, what's being revealed is we're guilty. You're guilty in your conscience. It confirms it. And so we're going to end this, this passage with the point that was made in the beginning, that God's judgment is perfect and right toward all people. My hope is, as you heard this, you wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been a major downer. <laughs> that could be the, we could look at this and like, ah, oh, man. Uh, because there's the other side. Like, like the law, what it's pointing to is sin. It is death. We reveal those things. And with Jew and Gentile, there is no favorites in judgment, but also in salvation. And so if you're here today and you're feeling guilty about sin, like there's some part of your life you're like, I, I need to repent of that thing, my response would be good. I'm glad that the conscience is working on you. I'm glad. And there's two different ways that you could respond to that. The first way is for someone who's a Christian. So that they've, they've understood the good news of Christ. It's like positionally, you're still with God. Like God doesn't like separate himself from you when you sin. But when we sin, we do move ourselves away from God. We, do, we, we pull away from God, and God feels distant to us. And so what repentance says is, is we say, I'm going to do something different, and actually there's like this restoration. We come back to God. Uh, and God's saying, come back. And if you're here and you're feeling guilty, and you're like, I don't even know what he's talking about when he says the gospel, you've received the gospel. The gospel is, is what Paul is working through in Romans. It's the good news. It's our hope. It's that we're sinners. We recognize we're sinners based on our heart, based on, on God's law, both of those things. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he's saying, I know that you're a sinner, but I'm going to demonstrate my love for you and that while you're a sinner, I'll still die for you. I'll take 
the punishment for your sin on the cross, and I'll offer you my righteousness. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, my hope is that you'd say, oh, oh, I don't have to feel this way. I don't have to feel guilty anymore. And not only do I have to feel guilty, I actually can walk with the creator of the universe. He, 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 he's my savior. I can be with him now and forever. And this is the good news. This is the great hope that we have. And so as we finish, I want to leave this, this quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, what's an application of this? Well, one is, is the gospel, the salvation. But two is the effect of God inside of us. And when we see who we are, it might affect how we view others. Uh, and if you struggle with forgiveness, uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote for you, but I think this should elevate. Like, we all should elevate our sin a little bit today. Like, oh, I'm actually more sinful than I understood. Uh, and if that's the case, that also should mean is God's forgiven me more than I understood, and probably others have forgiven me more than I understood. And so in a way, there's, a, there's a, an application here about forgiveness, that, that God has called me to be like him towards others, and I can forgive others. And the way that we know we can forgive others, uh, C.S. Lewis highlights here. He says, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would, as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. I used to think, silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man who had been doing this, doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things, hated the things was that I loved the man just because I love myself. I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. He says, actually, I have been showing forgiveness to the most grievous of sin. I do it to myself. We too can pass that on to others, understand that's how God has forgiven us. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice that you can make us right, that we don't have to live in guilt and shame Father, I pray that you'd help us to be sensitive to your leading. God, we'd be rightly convicted by our conscience. We'd be moved by the Spirit. And we'd be shaped by your word. I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, that they would turn to you, that they would find forgiveness in you. And I pray for all of us as, as there's things that came to mind about our guilt, that we would quickly repent and restore our, be restored with you. Um, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to continue.